0: Hebrews 11, start in verse 20. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau, even regarding things to come. By faith, Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. Would you bow with me? These are just a handful of verses, our Father, and short at that. And yet as we think about the book of Genesis, this covers more than half of the book, uh, these three stories. They are powerful stories about your magnificent sustaining grace, your kindness to work and accomplish your will through weak people. And that's encouraging to us because all of us are weak. Some of us feel that at times more than others. Certainly there are some moms here today probably who are feeling that weakness and emptiness. Perhaps even brokenness. How will I persist? How will I make it? How will I keep the faith? How will I guide my children? How will I endure? And certainly apart from them, there are others of us who are feeling similar ways for different reasons. And these stories are a blessing to us and a help to us because they remind us that more than just calling us to faith and faithfulness, now you are a faithful God, full of grace, abounding in loving kindness, And you are able to sustain, encourage, and build up even the weakest among us. And would you be pleased to do that even as we consider this passage this morning? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. The legacy of people's final words is fascinating. What were the final words and thoughts on people's minds and lips As they prepared to depart this life for the next life. Eternal life or eternal death. Those words are significant because death is the ultimate enemy of all men. There are more harsh ways and there are less harsh ways for people to die. But mankind was made to live and not to die. And death came as a result of the fall of man into sin and death is a curse against us. We are resistant to it. It is hostile to us. And so as people are embarking on entering into that, in the final stages, what do they say as they are facing the imminency of death, their final enemy? Hugo Chavez's final words were, quote, I don't want to die. Please, don't let me die. Philosopher Thomas Hobbes, I'm about to take my last voyage, a great leap in the dark. Mr. Fred Rogers, you know him of TV fame. His final words, Am I a sheep of Jesus? He didn't know. Joe DiMaggio, the great baseball player, I finally get to see Marilyn. Jack Daniel. Yes, that one. One last drink, please. And Alfred Hitchcock. One never knows the ending. One has to die to know exactly what happens after death, although Catholics have their hopes. In addition to these and an abundance more, We have the final words of men in Scripture as well. God has recorded for us the final words, the final longings of some of His faithful people in the Word of God. The Apostle Paul wrote this shortly before he was martyred to his protege Timothy. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to His heavenly kingdom. To Him be the glory forever and ever Amen. Isn't that a better benediction than some of those others? Or how about Stephen as he was being stoned? They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. And of course, we have the final seven sayings of our Lord Jesus Christ from the cross, including his final declaration, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And Luke records, having said this, he breathed his last. In the passage that is before us this morning, we have some of the final words of some of God's faithful men. This is what faith looked like at the end of life. The temptation when facing death, of course, is to suppose that God has failed and that we cannot be confident in Him. We cannot trust Him. How did these evaluate God and evaluate God's promises to them, not only when they were dying, but when they were dying without having received what He promised that they would get? Last week, we noted through the life of Abraham that spiritual tests are inevitable, They're even planned by God. And when tested, we are to continue to respond faithfully in obedience and trust in Him. In the remaining account of the patriarchs, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, the writer to the Hebrews expands this idea of spiritual testing that he introduced in the life of Abraham, taking it to its final and ultimate earthly end. Its final, ultimate earthly test, and that is death. While Abraham was tested with the potential death of his son, the faith of the other patriarchs of Israel were revealed as they approached their own deaths. What did they say when they're approaching their death? As we look at Hebrews 11, 20 to 22, we will learn that death does not compromise God's plan. Specifically this, When facing death, be confident that God will still accomplish His purposes. Death does not mean that God's promises have failed, that He's incompetent, incapable, or doesn't care. Death hasn't changed anything about His promises. And from the example of the patriarchs, we learn how to face our ultimate test, death. He's going to give us three ways to face those testings in death. You know, brothers and sisters, we need to learn how to live faithfully, how to live well. That's what this chapter is about. But this chapter is also about how to die well, how to die with faithfulness, how to die coming to the end of our lives when All of the dreams have not been fulfilled. All the promises have not been completed. And we get to the end of the life. What will we say? How will we die? Will we die with faithfulness? Some of us this morning in this room are seeing the imminence of death. It's a a short walk away. I'm not saying anything about anybody's particular health. But when you get to a certain age, you realize I am way closer to the end than the beginning. Others of us understand the reality of death. We've seen it, but it just seems to be something distant that, yeah, people talk about, but it's not very much of a reality in my life. And brothers and sisters, wherever you are on that continuum, we're all moving unrelentingly towards death. It's, it's trite to say it, but it's absolutely true. You are a day closer to the end of your life today than you were yesterday. And every day, every minute, you're marching towards death. How will we face death by faith? The writer gives us three examples and gives us two principles in each of the examples, and they're all parallel to one another. Consider, for instance, Isaac, when Isaac faced death. We are introduced to Isaac actually... Not in verse 20, but in verse 17, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. Isaac is introduced there, and he is, I was trying to find the right word for that this week. He was, I'm going to say, the recipient of Abraham's faith in that we look at Abraham and say Abraham was tested. But let's not forget the fact that it's Isaac that was trussed up and placed on the altar. His test was being, faced, uh, was being tested as well in that moment. Though the text says nothing, either here or in Genesis, about how he responded. Now in verse 22, or excuse me, verse 20, we find the example of Isaac living by faith. Isaac appears throughout the book of Genesis, particularly in chapters 21 to 35, though the majority of his story is told in Genesis 25 to 27. And as we come to this verse, we should note that while all of the characters in this chapter are flawed, and by that I simply mean they're sinners, and some demonstrate their sinfulness more than others, um, Isaac just seems to be one of those who is particularly flawed Uh, Just consider a couple of examples. Genesis 25, and if you want to follow along, we're going to be back and forth between Hebrews and Genesis. Hebrews 25 tells us in verse 28, Now Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Ah, Age-old favoritism. And how's that working in the family, Isaac? Isaac's playing favorites, pitting one against the other, typically or um, unrelentingly continually holding up Jacob as the favorite, or excuse me, Esau as the favorite, trying to give Esau things that didn't belong to him and trying to withhold things from Jacob that did belong to him. Further, like Abraham, Isaac was fearful and he lied to the Philistines about his relationship with his wife Rachel. And... um, He sought to bless Esau. (laughs) This is good. Chapter 27. Isaac said, Behold, now I am old and I don't know the day of my death. Now then, please, he says to Esau, take your gear, your quiver and bow and go out in the field to hunt game for me and prepare a savory dish for me such as I love and bring it to me, watch this, so that my soul may bless you before I die. Now, if you just read that, you go, Well, you know... (laughs) poor old Esau, he's getting um, manipulated by Jacob and he's getting things taken away from him from Jacob. Dad's just trying to even the balance, except you got to read it in context. Just glance up to the end of chapter 26, verse 34, end of the chapter. When Esau was 40 years old, he married Judith, the daughter of Beri the Hittite and Bazemath, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, and they brought grief to Isaac and Rebekah. He's trying to bless his son, who is living in willful rebellion against God. He's he's saying, I I want to bless you. And and further, not just that, but God had told him who would get the blessing. The Lord says to Isaac and Rebekah, Twenty five twenty three. the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, two peoples will be separated from your body, and one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. God said, Jacob's going to be the one that gets the blessing, and here's Isaac trying to circumvent the whole process. So one writer has said about Isaac, Isaac was easily the least spectacular and most ordinary of the four patriarchs. He was less dynamic and colorful, being generally quiet and passive, and overall, he probably had the weakest faith. We know more about his failures than of his successes. And this story is of no credit to Isaac, Esau, or Jacob. The entire family acted shamefully. Father and son tried to do the wrong thing in the wrong way and mother and son tried to accomplish the right thing but in the wrong way. And all of that is happening under his leadership. And yet, Hebrews 11.20, by faith, Isaac. (laughs) Here's Isaac in what we call the hall of faith and he has affirmed for his faith. What did Isaac do. That demonstrated faith in God. Well the first thing he did. Was that he reminded his sons. Of the promises of God. Did you notice this. By faith. Isaac blessed. Jacob and Esau. He blessed them. The basic sense of the word bless. Is to speak well of something. To extol it. Or to praise something. Something. Uh, in Scripture, particularly in the Old Testament, blessings between individuals like here. So there are all kinds of blessings. God blesses people. People bless God. But people also bless one another. And that's what's going on in this particular instance. When you find blessings between people, very often they serve as petitions or we might say a prayer request for that person And God ultimately is seen as the source of this blessing. So I I desire this for you, but I I rest in God's provision for you, and I trust that God will provide it for you. The Puritan John Owen said about these Old Testament blessings that they were partly prayers and partly prophetic predictions. They did not, and this is so helpful, they did not pray for nor could they foretell anything other than what God had promised. So in that sense, they're not predictive, but they express desires and they serve as reminders. And in his blessings of his two sons, particularly of Jacob, Isaac is reminding them of the promises of God. Where do we see that? If you went back to Hebrews, come back to Genesis, chapter 27. Genesis 27. We have it right in the middle of the chapter. So Jacob is in the middle of his deceit. And Isaac calls him and says, uh, verse 26, Please come close and kiss me, my son. So he came close and kissed him, and when he smelled the smell of his garments, he, Isaac, blessed him and said this, See, the smell of my son is like the smell of the field which the Lord has blessed. Now may God give you the dew of heaven. So do you see that blessing where he's, he's making petition and he's entrusting the son to God for God's provision, for God's care for him. And in doing so, he's reminding him that God is the one who is the provider. Again, verse 28. Now may God give you the dew of heaven, the fatness of the earth, and an abundance of grain and new wine. May peoples serve you, and nations bow down to you. Be master of your brothers, and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Watch this. Cursed be those who curse you, and blessed be those who bless you. And so as he's... Giving that blessing, he's reminding Isaac, or he's reminding, Isaac is reminding Jacob. I don't know about you, but I'm constantly getting the names tangled. So give me a little grace today, okay, if I get the names tangled. Isaac is blessing Jacob and saying, you are powerless. And if you're going to be blessed, God is the one that's going to have to bring the blessing and the favor on your life, the grace on your life. And when he gets to the end... You just smell a hint of the Abrahamic covenant, don't you? So if you go back to chapter 12 and the promise that God made to Abraham, he says in verse 3, Genesis 12, I will bless those who bless you and the ones who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's almost word for word what Isaac says to Jacob here. He's reminding him. God has made a promise to Abraham. That promise was passed on to me and now it is being passed on to you and God will keep the promise that he made to Abraham. There will be covenantal blessing that emanates from our family and permeates all of the earth. And despite all of his failures, at the end of his life, Isaac not only pro- clung to the promises of God himself, but he pointed his sons to the promises of God. In fact, what's really interesting, we, we know that Isaac is being deceived here in chapter 27, right? The deception is revealed later in that chapter. Chapter 28, Isaac called Jacob, verse 1, and blessed him. Here's another blessing, or we might say a reiteration of the blessing. And he says in verse three, may God almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of blessings. May he also give you the blessing of Abraham. Again, this is Abrahamic promise, Abrahamic covenant being passed down through Jacob and not through Esau, the firstborn. May he give you the blessing of Abraham to you and to your descendants with you, that you may possess the land of your sojournings which God gave to Abraham. So at the end of his life, when all is said and done, for all the ups and downs, the travails, the, the inconsistent move towards sanctification, we would say, Isaac is faithful. At the end of his life, when he hasn't received the promise He is faithful to God and to remind his sons of God's faithfulness. G.I. Packer has said, It has become conventional to think as if we are all going to live in this world forever and to view every case of bereavement as a reason for doubting the goodness of God. Say what you will about Isaac. When Isaac got to the end of life, he didn't question God. But he reiterated the promise of God and pointed his sons to the truth. There's another thing that Isaac did. And that is that he reminded himself and his sons of the future of God. Did you see this in Hebrews 11? By faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau even regarding the things to come. The dominant phrase in this verse is, regarding the things to come. We might read it literally this way if we're following the word order, which is what the writer wants us to see, how he's emphasizing what he's wanting to emphasize by faith, even concerning the things to come. Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau. What he wants us to see is the promise of the blessing and the things that are coming. He's wanting us to see that at the end of his life, Isaac did not give up on God's promises. Death would not mean that God's promises had failed. They're simply going to be carried out, enacted, fulfilled in future generations. It's Isaac's way of saying, son, there's more to come. You haven't seen the end of the story yet. This is what tells us how Isaac's life was one of faith. Twice after the blessing, he affirmed that Jacob would receive the blessing of God. Jacob's the one that gets the blessing. And he was speaking with firm conviction that God's purposes for Isaac's family and the nation of Israel could not fail. Even though the fulfillment's in the distant future, God could be trusted to fulfill the promises And that's the theme that we keep seeing in this chapter, isn't it? God's going to keep His promises. Every decade, predictions are made about what the next 10 years are going to be like. I love centuries, you know. When you get to the century mark, it's like, Oh, the next century, the next time we do this, life is going to be like this. It's comical uh, what people think. They not only don't get centuries right, they don't get decades right. Frankly, we don't even get the next year right. So January 1 every year... What's going to happen in the next year? Nobody knows. We always get it wrong. Here's Isaac's prediction for the future. I don't know how or when, but in the future, God will fulfill his promises. He will accomplish his purposes. And that's what made Isaac faithful. Not just Isaac was faithful in this passage, but also Jacob when Jacob faced death. We're introduced to Jacob in verse 21. By faith, Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph. Uh, We're reminded about Jacob. Uh, Jacob Jacob is dominant in the book of Genesis. We find his story starting in Genesis 25. And the last part of his story is told in chapter 49. And in fact, We even see him in chapter 50 as his body is taken back to the land of Canaan, the promised land. Uh, His story is not dominating all those chapters. His story is primarily told in chapters 27 to 36, but still about a fourth of the book of Genesis. Not quite, but close. And like his father, his life was stained by inconsistencies. Deception, manipulation, despondency. Chapter 28, he tries to strike a deal with God. If you do this, then I'll follow you. And yet what is notable about his life is that his greatest sin, his act of deception, is not mentioned either in verse 20, though verse 20 is about his deception in a way, nor in verse 21 of Hebrews 11. Instead, the writer of the Hebrews points to the definitive act in Jacob's life At the end of his life. Notice this verse 21. By faith Jacob as he was dying. The sense of that phrase is as he was on his deathbed. Now we know from Genesis 48 that he was still able to sit up in bed. So he was able to push himself up in bed. So he still had some small measure of strength. But it was waning and it was short perhaps days or a very short number of weeks before he passed away. What did Jacob do that demonstrated faith? Jacob reminded his sons about the gracious promises of a gracious God. By faith, Jacob, as he was dying, last thing on his lips, blessed each of the sons of Joseph. Now we know, as Carl noted when he did our reading for us this morning, he blessed all of his sons. We find that in Genesis 49. So all the sons received a blessing or a prayer from him. But preceding that, in Genesis 48, he called in Joseph and asked Joseph to bring in his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, and he blessed each of them. And the text here in Hebrews 11 is emphatic about that. He blessed each of the sons. Now, he did for Joseph's sons what he manipulated Isaac to doing for him. He reversed the order of blessing. So the older received less blessing, the younger received more blessing. But what the writer of the Hebrews wants us to see is not that there's a discrepancy in the order of blessing. He wants us to see that each of them received a blessing. And, and he wants us to see that Joseph is getting a double blessing, if you will, because both of his sons received a blessing. God has been astoundingly gracious. But God has been gracious in another way as well, not just giving a double blessing to Joseph Do you remember who Joseph's wife was? His wife's name was Asenath. She was the daughter of an Egyptian priest. She was a foreigner, not an Israelite. Outside the covenant, if you will. And his sons came from her. Not, we would say, full children of the covenant. It's safe to assume that she converted. It's safe to assume. We know this because of how the sons responded and what happened. Uh, It's safe to assume that the boys were raised as part of God's covenant. But Asenath was a Gentile convert. And yet God was gracious to her and her children. Notice then, not just the blessing in general, but notice the blessing in particular that Jacob gives to Joseph's sons. It's written for us in Genesis 48, start in verse 15. He blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads. And may my name live on in them and the names of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, that they may grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. And so he's, he's appealing to, in, those, in that opening section of the blessing, he's appealing to and making a request for the God of Abraham to protect and guide the boys. He's, he's reminding them God's been gracious, God's made a promise, and the promise will be fulfilled through you and through these two sons. He also reminds them and appeals to God to make them prominent among the tribes of Israel. Verse 20, he blessed them that day saying, by you Israel will pronounce a blessing saying, may God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. And thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. So Manasseh was the older, but Ephraim gets the primary blessing. But he's reminding them again, if, if this is going to happen, if you're going to have a place of prominence, this is, this is going to be the work of God and it's going to be God's grace. And verse 21, he expands that. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you back To the land of your fathers. I gave you one more portion than your brothers, which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and with my bow. So you don't get one blessing, you get two through Ephraim and Manasseh. But the key to notice here is verse 21 I'm about to die. God will be with you. God will bring you back. God will take you to the promised land. And again, he's not seen the promise. In fact, he's already been a generation in Egypt away from the promised land. He's now the second generation past Abraham that hasn't received the promise. And his final dying words are, God will take you back. He reminded his sons about the gracious promises of a gracious God. And the other thing that Jacob did The demonstrated faith when he faced death, was he remembered the priority of worship. Did you notice this? He blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshiped, leaning on the top of his staff. Here's a remarkable shift. At the beginning of his life, Jacob is grasping. I mean, literally, that's what his name means. The one who's grabbing a hold, the one who's grasping, and he came out holding his brother's heel, trying to in a sense, picture picture of pulling him back. So from before the time that he could have a, a, a particular thought, he's already seen as one who's manipulating, trying to get ahead, to be first. And that, that was the tenor of his life, wasn't it? Got to manipulate circumstances, orchestrate things, so I get to be first, I get to be on top. At the end of his life, he's not manipulating. He's worshiping. He's expressing gratitude, dependence, and submission to God as His authority. The text tells us Hebrews eleven that he is leaning on his staff. We get that actually from Genesis thirty-seven, or excuse me, forty-seven, verse thirty-one, and he says, "Then Israel, that is Jacob, bowed in worship and at the head of his bed." And so there's. Lots of ink been spilled. Okay, Moses says in Genesis 47, the head of the bed. And the writer of the Hebrews says the head of the staff or the top of the staff. Which is it? Staff or bed? Well, actually, could, could be either because in Hebrew, when they were writing the text, they only write in consonants. And the same consonants comprise the word bed and staff. Later... Editors went in and add vowels. And so they were guessing. So when they guessed at what Moses wrote, they stuck in the vowels that made it read bed. But when the Greek translators looked at it, they said, we don't think it's bed, we think it's staff. And so they translated it that way. Whichever way it is, the point that the writer of the Hebrews is making is that as Jacob was dying he was not embittered by what he hadn't received what he hadn't experienced instead he was worshipping at the end of his life he still worshipped the Lord and entrusted all things to him though he acted as a deceiver in multiple events of his life at the end he was a worshipper of God he was physically weak He's leaning on something. He doesn't have the strength to hold himself up. He needs support. He's physically broken, physically weak, and he is strong in faith. He points Joseph, and then he points his sons, the rest of them in Genesis 49, to the faithfulness of God and his covenant promises. says one commentator, the infirmity of age had not dulled his devotion. In fact, it seemed that as he aged, he grew stronger in faith. And isn't that the way it should be? There is something worse than dying young. And that is to die as an old man and not have grown in faith toward God. I came across this this week from World Magazine The writer says, what will it profit a man to live long as, as, excuse me, what will it profit a man to live as long as Methuselah and still die as foolish as at 40? I always like Jimmy Durante's rendition of Young at Heart with the line, and if you should survive to 105, look at all you derive out of being alive. Yeah, that's what you're going to go home singing today, isn't it? And then she continues, But I happened to interview a local woman who was 105, and she has not derived very much. And I left disappointed. In 1973 in the Swiss Alps, I met an old bent man with a staff who had never been down the mountain from whom I hoped to pry secrets as ancient as the hills. He turned out to be a lecher. Those are people who wasted their lives. They came into the world not worshiping God and they left in the very same way. Conversely, Isaac started poorly and he finished well. He's a worshiper. And that's the goal of every believer. And I think these examples are given to us in these three short verses to remind us when you get to the end of life What counts is what you are at the end of life. And even if you start poorly, you can finish well and finish with vibrancy and be considered to be one who is faithful to God. In fact, it's notable. All three examples, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, the examples from all of their lives come at the end of their life. The last test, death proved that they were faithful, they learned and changed. One last person that we find in this text, and that's Joseph in verse 22. By faith, Joseph, again, when he was dying, made mention. Unlike Jacob and Isaac, Joseph did not confer formal blessing on his sons or on the Israelites But what we find in verse 22 is he is still looking past his life, past his death, towards God's fulfillment of his promises. And again, the test came as he was dying, at the very end of his life. Now, unlike the two that preceded him, Joseph had a remarkable life of faith. Uh, I just... I just kind of read through his story. His story roughly starts in Genesis 37, goes through the end of the book, so it's about a fourth of the book of Genesis. And let me just remind you of some of his acts of faith. Genesis 37 He had faith to speak truthfully to his father about the spiritual condition of his brothers. He had faith to tell his brothers and his father his dreams. He had faith not to be anxious about his brothers selling him into slavery. He had faith to conduct himself with integrity in Potiphar's household, with with all of Potiphar's goods. He had faith not to respond to the advances of Potiphar's wife. He had faith to live righteously while falsely jailed. He had faith to speak the truth about the interpretation of the two dreams of those who were imprisoned with him. He had faith to persist while imprisoned two more years after the cupbearer forgot about him. He had faith to interpret Pharaoh's dream correctly and then faith to devise a plan. He had faith to cultivate a plan for Egypt that that provided for the people and respected the authority of Pharaoh. He had faith to provide graciously for his brothers and not exact retribution. He had faith to wait for the return of his brothers with Benjamin. He had faith to provide for his brothers on their second trip to Egypt. He had faith to reveal himself to his brothers and provide for them and for Jacob in Egypt. He had faith to talk to Pharaoh about his brothers coming to Egypt. He had faith to take less valuable land from Egypt for his brothers, believing that God would provide. And he had faith to procure all of the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. This is a man whose life is permeated with faith. And at the end... Out of all those things, I mean, what would you have grabbed? By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel. I, I'm not even sure that would have made it to my top ten list. But the writer of the Hebrews wants us to see the essential nature, the definitive nature of... Of Joseph reminding his brothers of the promises of God and that that's what made him faithful. He referred to the Exodus. That's shorthand for what Moses tells us happened. Genesis 50, verse 24. Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land. So he's going to take you from this one to that one. That's the Exodus. He didn't know when it would happen. He didn't know under what circumstances it would happen, but he was absolutely confident that it would happen. And brothers and sisters, remember this, when he says that, When he says, God made a promise to Abraham and he's going to fulfill it, we go, well, yeah, okay, that's Genesis 50, that was Genesis 12, so that's only 38 chapters, it's not that big a deal. No, that was 200 years. And he says, I know God hasn't fulfilled it yet in 200 years, but I'm telling you, God's going to take you and all of your families home to the land he promised Abraham. And notice as well that he's thinking about that as his home and not Egypt. Now think about about Joseph. When Joseph left the promised land, he was about 17 years old. Twice in this text, again at the end, verse 26 of Genesis 50, it tells us he died at 110 years of age. Ninety-three years he lived in Egypt. All of his adult life he lives in Egypt. The only time we know of that he left Egypt to go back to the promised land was when he went to take his father there to bury him in the middle of Genesis 50. As far as we know, that's the only other time he went back. And yet, he sees the promise that is made to Abraham as his home, his place, the place of Israel. And while never receiving the promises, 200 years, 93 years of his own life, he is absolutely unwavering in his confidence that God would keep the promises. Even as death approached, some of his older brothers were outliving him. And he says, God's going to keep His promise. Just because Joseph didn't see the promise. Did not mean that God had failed. He still believed God. And there's a second thing that he did. And that was that he planned for a future he would not see. Planned for a future he would not see. Verse 22. He made mention of the exodus. Of the sons of Israel. That marked his faith. And then there's another thing that marked his faith. He gave orders concerning his bones not just made orders he made them swear promise verse 25 of genesis 50 joseph made the sons of israel swear saying god will surely take care of you and you shall carry my bones up from here i want to go home now don't don't read those that verse as Joseph essentially saying, I'm making my funeral arrangement plans and I've got a prearrangement plan, so there's not going to be any burden on you. Well, that's great if you can do that, but that's not what's going on here. Joseph's telling his brothers and his sons, this isn't home. I'm headed home. And we understand as well, though it's not in the text in Genesis, but he was looking for something else, wasn't he? He's wanting to go back to the promised land. That's where God's going to fulfill the promises that are made to Israel or to, to Abraham and then from Abraham to the nation of Israel. But he's like all the others. Hebrews eleven thirteen These died in faith without having received them, but having seen them and welcomed them from a distance, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. But they, verse 16, desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. And God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. I'm looking forward. I'm looking forward to my heavenly home. And that's what He's wanting. That's where He's going. That's what He's planning for. I don't see it yet. But that's where I'm going. He planned in faith. And ultimately, God provided in grace it is notable that four centuries later Moses took the bones of Joseph from e- from Egypt Exodus 13 tells us that and then Joshua picked them up and took them into the promised land Joshua 24 tells us that and he buried him there God fulfilled that promise and God is fulfilling the ultimate promise as well right By taking him to his heavenly home. Isaac, Jacob, Joseph all faced death, and all did so with faith in God. One last question. What about when we face death? How are we going to respond when we face death? What what do we learn from these faithful men about facing death? One. Remember the promises of God. Remember the promises of God. This is the second week in a row that I'm not going to get through this, but I wrote a blog post about it this week so you can read it there. What's interesting in Hebrews 11, from Hebrews 11 forward, we just have repeated emphases by the writer of Hebrews about the faithfulness of God to keep His promises. And over and over from 11 to 13, we find repeated statements, God is keeping promises. And all of it is built, I think, on 1036, that he's reminding the, the, the readers of this book, you're wanting to give up on Jesus, and you're wanting to go back to the law, and you're trying to go back to the old way, and you're thinking something's gone wrong because we're being persecuted. remember, that you have need of endurance, 1036, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what has been promised. God's going to fulfill. Don't give up now. When you're so close to getting the fulfillment, God will keep his promises. Remember the promises of God. Secondly, don't live in regret at the end of life, do repent as it is needed. And for all of us, who carry this fleshly body, sinful body, body that is, and spirit that is prone towards sin, and always struggling with the flesh, uh, we all need repentance. So do repent, as that's necessary. Do turn away from your sin. Do fight against your sin. But, but don't stay in regret. Don't stay in, in bitterness over the things that you have done and that have been done against you. Listen, what you find all the way through this story, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, is that God is using all things to accomplish his purposes, even sin. When you read those chapters starting in, verse, in chapter 25 and go through the end of Genesis And you just see repeated sin after repeated sin after repeated sin, and you find God, above it all, orchestrating it to accomplish His purposes. That's a reminder, one commentator says, that God sometimes works through the unlikeliest of people. Some seem as if they would believe and yet do not, and some seem as if they would never believe, and yet, by God's grace, they do. Brothers and sisters, God uses all kinds of people to accomplish His purposes, even you and me. Flawed, broken, weak as we are. Listen, sin against you has not thwarted God's purposes. And sin against you has not ruined your life from God's perspective. And your sins against others haven't thwarted God's purposes or ruined others either. Every sin can be redeemed. Every sin can be used by God, and His sovereign grace is accomplishing His purposes, even, should we say, especially through sinful men and their sinful deeds. Don't live in regret at the end of life. Instead, Be grateful for faith. Even weak faith. What matters is not the strength of your faith, but the strength of the one in whom you believe. God uses even the weak faith of His people to fulfill His promises. Weak people like Isaac. Weak people like Jacob. Weak faith in the right object still saves. Weak faith Halting, questioning, wondering, weak faith in Christ that's genuine faith still saves. Your salvation is not dependent on the strength of your faith. Your salvation is dependent on the strength of Christ who died to redeem you from sin. And so be grateful when God has given you faith and then pray for more grace to grow in your confidence to God. Finally, cultivate contentment in your trial and your approaching death. Listen, for the believer, death does not destroy the plan of God. It completes it. Death is the final act of redemption. Death is the final demonstration of Christ's victory over Satan and sin. Listen, Satan would use death to destroy us. And God says, no, wait a minute. I've got that one one final act of redemption and I will take that death in which you, you seek to destroy my child and I'm going to bring him into my heavenly home fully redeemed, absent from sin, absent from death, able to see my face. Oh, brothers and sisters, yes, death is our enemy. But if we're in Christ, we can be content with it, even as we approach it unrelentingly. In February of 1546, Martin Luther made one last trip to his birth city, Isleben. There was a church dispute in Eisleben, and Luther was committed to attempting to help resolve it, despite telling a friend a few weeks earlier I am old, weary, lazy, worn out, chilly, and over and above, a one-eyed man, half dead as I am. Please leave me in peace. Some of you maybe feel that way. Yet there was a problem in the church in Eisleben, and to Eisleben Luther went. To get there, it was traveling in February. He went through freezing rain, ice, bitter winds. And his wife Katie was concerned about his condition, so he wrote to her on February 7th, And he said this, I have a caretaker who is better than you and all the angels. He lies in a manger and nurses at his mother's breast, yet he sits at the right hand of God, the Almighty Father. That's my caretaker. Eleven days later, Luther would be dead. Before he died, he preached one final sermon, if you will, from his deathbed a text that came a message that came from two texts psalm 68:19 blessed be the lord who daily bears us up god is our salvation and john 3:16 of which he said our god is indeed a god of salvation and that salvation comes through the work of his son Like the patriarchs in Hebrews 11, Luther was faithful to the end because he kept looking backward to the promises of God and forward to the fulfillment of those promises. We will likewise live lives of faith as we approach the trials of life, the burdens of life, the stresses of life, and the ultimate stress, death, with complete confidence that God will safely take us home and keep His promises to us. You can trust Him. To take you home. Father we thank you. For these verses that remind us very simply. Not just about living well. But about dying well. And would you equip us to do that. Would you help us. To lean on you. To trust you. To be dependent on you. To find solace in your word. Encouragement and hope in your word. That makes us to finish well. Some of us have not started well. Or some of us have started well, but it's early in the race. Some of us now are approaching the end of the race. Would you make all of us, wherever we are, both spiritually and physically, would you make us to be those who finish well, dependent on you, faithful to you, dependent on our Savior,